as a clinician who survived 32 years in an academic institution. Uh, so I don't do primary research, uh, but I'm a translator, I take care of patients, I teach a lot. Uh, I was a DCCT principal investigator, wrote uh, ACE guidelines four or five years ago, self-assessment test for diabetes for ADA. Um, my mentors included uh, Rubenstein with DCCT, Lester Baker, I've worked with you in the past, and Jesse Roth and David Rodgers. I've, I've been blessed to have wonderful teachers, and I succinctly say they taught me to think diabetes. If we don't have the data, then we have to learn how to think and, and use our information. And then four years ago, I left Penn, and yet uh, in a private practice now, uh, I uh, have been more academic than I was there. So I've written 16 papers, I've been an H grade from Mata, uh, traveling internationally, and nationally, and I'm having a ball. So it's a, a pleasure to uh, bring some of my ideas. Uh, many of these ideas uh, were in the last four or five years that I was at uh, Penn. Um, so we see diabetes after transplant, or by the way, disclosures. Uh, and we know uh, incidence, uh, <laughs> we know that is uh, high. Um, variation, sometimes due to the lack of a standard definition, varies by organ, varies by diagnostic trait, and it certainly varies by the immunosuppressive regimen that you choose. Uh, we can see that uh, after 95, the incidence uh, is increasing, practically five is a, a little lower, uh, but this is just uh, impressive, especially in older, especially with uh, more obese uh, and increased levels of uh, immunosuppressive agents. And it has a downside, uh, more than just the diabetes. Uh, free of cardiac events, uh, if you have no diabetes, they have obviously still increased risk of passing away, but the new onset uh, post-transplant diabetes, um, and if they had diabetes before transplant, uh, their uh, morbidity and mortality is uh, further reduced. Uh, translation is not only do you have to pay attention to, quote, sugar, we should take care of the patient to pay attention to cardiovascular risk factors. So we're going to talk about mechanisms of diabetes. This is another topic. I'm in the midst of a second revision sending this topic in. I think we need new classification of diabetes and a way to approach our, uh, diabetics. Uh, we'll talk about mechanisms of uh, diabetes that might be unique to know that, uh, precipitous risk factors. Uh, we'll talk about the effect of the new suppressive drugs on beta cells, how to pick the right therapy, and then a process for uh, clinical care of these patients. So we believe that all diabetes is really one disease. It's the core defect, that's the diabetes. Uh, even the, if you talk to Defranzo, insulin resistance type 2, but he now admits that you finally have wearing out of the beta cell, even if you have no primary genetic defect in beta cell, they wear out, so the beta cell is the final common denominator. Um, and uh, it'll help us find and treat the causes of beta cell dysfunction. Uh, and then we have ensuing mechanisms of hyperglycemia as a result of beta cell dysfunction. So a new classification also translates to new ways of thinking about uh, treating our patients. Uh, we've encapsulated here that uh, diabetes is basically a genetic uh, disease where in most situations the beta cells inherit some abnormalities. Um, but you also have genetic components to insulin resistance to the environment. This feeds back to the genes epigenetics. 
information and new regulation, not only in the quote current type one, type two model, uh, but it's across the whole spectrum. Um, and this, the patient that would come in front of you, eventually you'll find out what are the genes that are causing it. You'll find out uh, uh, by defining appropriate markers, what uh, uh, do they have insulin resistance, environmental factors, like the drugs that you might be treating for NODAN. Uh, find out by appropriate uh, markers, uh, antibodies, so forth. Uh, do they have factors related to inflammation and regulation? And then once you define the factors that apply to that patient, then you pick the right there. Uh, environmental issues include the genetic susceptibility of viruses and different disruptors, uh, food AGEs, gut biome, uh, insulin resistance. It's more than just the gut. Uh, there's central nucleus, the suprachiasmic nucleus mechanism, stress hormones like steroids, also gut biome uh, changes resistance. Uh, you've seen uh, uh, this for type 1, but this is the same pattern we can say for type 2, uh, where uh, the slope is the natural history over time, the rate of obstruction severity is uh, how far and how low this uh, goes. Uh, and though you always see this uh, progression to all, even all type 2, they're going to eventually leave it, so we don't believe that in new medications that can preserve themselves. So I like to draw this as well, maybe you're going to go for it, but with the newer agents, and newer uh, uh, research, we can modify this disease plan. And where this came from, the classic type 1 scene, uh, this is the classic type 2 scene. Well, guess what? You can apply the same picture to type 2, but guess what? It's, it's the same process for all diabetes. Uh, and so it's resistance will continue to an complications, even those that see know that. Beta cell dysfunction, Paracolytics, worsen traumatic disease, starts microvascular. Uh, same process exists for quote all diabetes. And then what we've done is, if, you know, Defranzo's octet. He says there's eight core defects. I don't believe it. I think there's one core defect of beta cell. Um, he has eight organs, but there's no logic uh, uh, among their their circle around the. Uh, the hyperglycemia, but here's the logic. You know, resistance damages the kidney, the brain with its, uh, uh, its resistance, peripheral resistance damages the base cell. Uh, the environment, and colon is one form of the environment because you know, the intestines are outside the body, uh, at least when you speak to an anatomist. Uh, and then immune dysregulation. So these are the factors destroying the beta cell. You have increased, uh, you have reduced insulin, and then as a result of abnormal beta cell function, you have reduced amylase, so you have the uh, faster gastric emptying, you have the reduced impotent effect, increased glucagon, and with the most minor hyperglycemia, you have upregulation up of SGLT2, and there's your kidney component uh, with upregulation of your increased glucose absorption. So you can put a logic to uh, the factors that are causing hyperglycemia, and the translation is you're going to pick the right drug for the right patient, uh, remember, you're going to define them by their genes, by their uh, by, uh, resistance, environment, and their beta cell problems. And uh, uh, we can go further, further, we'll go into how we translate to actual therapy. So, too often in that regard, we speak about order of use first, second, third line, competition between classes, uh, glycohemoglobin drop only. Uh, I think we should be changing that. Met matching mechanism, hyperglycemia to the mechanism of the actions of the meds. We'll talk about efficacy, 
now not just glucose, but by its effect on weight loss. And now, as of a month ago with infrared, we can talk about cardiovascular benefit. You know, reduce cardiovascular outcomes, and by the way, reduce cardiovascular risk factors. That's how we can define uh, specific efficacy, specific agent. And by the way, some of these agents are having multiple effects on multiple of those mechanisms that I've seen. I don't know if you noticed, there were 11. So I called that the egregious 11 instead of, egregious 11 instead of the Amistad 10. And yet there are some mechanisms that are unique to know that, uh, and let's discuss those. Uh, this came out of a recent uh, paper, I forgot to put the reference, but the immunosuppression issue is a, a key, uh, maybe the most important factor. So these other issues are important, HCV, CMV, uh, let's see, family history, age, gender, metabolic syndrome, obesity, but these are the most specific issues, the drugs that we're using now to treat the transplant patients to preserve their uh, transplanted organ um, have uh, ability to bring on diabetes. So what are the effects of these uh, agents on the base? Well, you have the classic issue again, the diabetes, uh, I mean the obesity, hepatitis C, but you have two major issues, insulin resistance and impaired beta cell capacity. Now this I put because in 2013 they at least realized that the calcium neural inhibitors, mTOR serolimus, um, can reduce beta cell secretion and they increase insulin resistance. But even here two years ago, you have glucocorticoids causing resistance, but I can go back 10, 15 years in the basic science literature, and this is where I found it, once I made my clinical observation, um, that glucocorticoids reduce beta cell secretion. And uh, this is a sort of a summary of the different drugs. So the glucocorticoids have effect here. And I'll show you slides that have other factors, uh, multiple ways that they reduce beta cell secretion. Um, the mTOR inhibitors have uh, an effect here in the potassium channel. Uh, Casimur inhibitors affect over here, corticosteroids effect here, and what I observed clinically in the hospital where you had the most stress, where you're using new, new drugs, that GLP-1 uh, agents and DPP-4 inhibitors translate incretins, counteract the reduction in insulin secretion due to all the medicines you're using in Novak. Uh, this is the calcineurin inhibitor effect on beta cells, so I'm not the biochemist, so, but there's multiple places here, at least four or five different places that these agents inhibit uh, or reduce insulin secretion. Uh, and TOR inhibitors uh, uh, do the same thing. They reduce insulin secretion, by the way, they cause insulin resistance. And these slides are available to anybody if you ask uh, uh, Kendra afterwards, you're welcome to, and then you can follow through on all the references. Um, Calcineurin inhibitors, like the spore and tachylinus, they reduce insulin secretion by multiple different mechanisms. Um, of interest here is abnormal postprenal insulin secretion with calcineurin inhibitors. And what's interesting here is that when you uh, have a clamp, IV glucose, there's not that much reduction in insulin secretion, but if you give 
uh, oral glucose and have uh, measurements in secretion, that's where you see a reduction. Translate, there's a decrease in insulin response postprandial with oral glucose, but not IV. It suggests that calcineurin inhibitors may impair incretin response, which then again has the same uh, effect on reducing insulin uh, secretion, uh, especially in the postprandial state with the calcineurin. Um, and then we start to learn, and this is the basic science, and this is, look, this is 10 years ago. This is not new information. Um, where if you look at immune suppressive drugs, a cocktail here, um, you have uh, reduced cell viability, reduced cell function. But if you put this cocktail in cells that have uh, con uh, uh, constitutive uh, production of GLP-1, you have improved insulin secretion. So these cells are making good one all the time, and therefore you don't see the problems here uh, when you use immune suppressive drugs. So it suggests GLP-1 uh, can prevent the reduction in insulin secretion due to uh, your immune suppressive drug content. Exenotide blocks the effect of calcineurin so uh, here's your vehicle, tacrolimus reduces it, uh, exendin one, uh, 4, uh, no difference in the normal state, but tacrolimus uh, exendin, uh, you don't have as much reduction in, uh, uh, this is actually uh, DNA corporation, so this is the, the, the persistence of your beta cells, the, the beta cell viability. Um, and incretins overcome rapamycin inhibition of uh, mTOR. And the nice picture out of this one, this is 2004, 11 years ago. This is not new stuff, but nobody was really acting on it. And uh, here's the more detailed uh, glucocorticoids interrupt uh, insulin secretory. Uh, this, this I found uh, when I first was Notice this effect that group, the, the group on cephalus and incretins uh, counteract the uh, uh, reduction in insulin secretion in uh, clinical situations uh, by steroids and so forth. Uh, but this was data available in basic science, you know, island cell cultures, back in 97 by Lambeau. And these are multiple mechanisms, and I put on a different one. This is another picture uh, of the same thing. Uh, this guy, Van Ralph, is a very nice, relatively young clinical <coughs> investigator, and uh, he had noticed the same kind of thing. Um, and yet, uh, corticosteroid free in suppression, uh, and this is the key picture here, is this is new onset diabetes after transplant. Uh, if you use corticosteroids, if you don't, it's less. You still have it because you still have the effect of the mTOR and it is a calcineurin, but it's worse if you're using steroids. That's the point of this. Um, and you know the pattern uh, is that they increase the postprandial sugar especially. You can see it in another one. See it here. So especially postprandial fasting also goes up. Um, and this is a, another one, glucose secretion. Uh, this is 2010, 2013. Uh, so you have uh, 
particularly capacity is reduced, and secretion rate is reduced. Um, and this is glucagon is increased. No surprise, that's insulin. You have more endogenous glucagon. And then, the corticoids have a resistance side. They uh, have uh, insulin uh, resistance at the liver, muscle, and fat. insulin resistance in all these areas. So you clearly have in NODAC the major cause in my mind and experience has been these effective these image-presupressive agents on both insulin resistance that was pretty well known but people were not translating the basic science which we've had for close to 20 years into the fact that it reduces insulin secretion. Uh, the funny story is I was having my heart trouble, I was good. I used exenatide when it first came out the first day to prevent high sugars from getting a cat and saw it was very effective, started using it in the hospital sort of illegally and saw that it was more effective in the hospital than it was outpatient, right? And, and I went to my basic science friend, Barr Stoffer, and she gave me the hint about this reduction in suspicion and that's when I found the label of the article, other articles, it was all sitting there. So in the hospital where you have endogenous steroid increase, um, endogenous glucagon increase with the stress and so forth, um, that these agents were much more effective and they were as or more effective in the transplant patient uh, because it was affecting uh, and counteracting uh, the effect of both insulin and insulin resistance by these agents. Um, and glucocorticoids uh, versus uh, acritins, uh, you have all these uh, steroid, oops, this one's not working anymore. No, there it goes. Um, which are effective, reduce secretion, increase glucagon, uh, insulin sensitivity is reduced, plus pain sugars up, body weights up, and incretins counteract the tissue. Um, and it was exonotide restores glucose to tolerance. Uh, this is in humans, and this is the Van Roth story four years ago. So with uh, prednisolone and exonotide, uh, you can get improvement in the deterioration that you saw from this model. And uh, you can improve islet cell function, reduce gastric, reducing gastric emptying as well. Um, and multiple ways by which you can counteract effective steroids. So how are we going to choose the right therapy in the treatment of NODAC? Uh, first, you have to know, uh, I grew up in a time uh, 40 years ago where um, we were taught to think diabetes. If we had the evidence, we would use it. If we didn't, we would think. Unfortunately, in the past 15 years or so, you've been taught evidence-based medicine. I disagree with it because it tells you if you don't have the evidence, keep doing the same lousy thing you've been doing for 30, 40 years, sulfonylureas in particular. So uh, lots of people don't like thinking outside of it. Well, I think inside a bigger box. And this is what Rubenson taught me 40 years ago. We need to... Um, Look at the data. If there's evidence, by all means use it. Take advantage of it. But if there's no evidence, understand the pathophysiology of disease, understand the uh, agents that we have available, read the primary data, and then see if in your head it makes sense. 
And here what I saw was clinically it was making an effect. I went to basic science, to the basic science for literature, and it was logical to let's say, let's improve insulin secretion, let's uh, reduce uh, uh, insulin resistance, and maybe we can treat these patients better. <coughs> and so we have agents, these in blue, uh, that can affect uh, all the issues that reduce and affect beta cell function. And we have agents that counteract uh, the result of beta cell dysfunction, the counteract the reduction of mammalin and the uh, fast gastric emptying. We can improve incretin effect. We can uh, reduce glucagon. We can counteract the kidney uh, uh, SGLT2 uh, uh, story, the upregulation of SGLT2. So we can pick the right drug uh, based on the patient in front of you. And in particular, with NODAC, we're going to be using agents that uh, improve uh, uh, insulin sensitivity. We're going to use agents that uh, improve insulin uh, uh, secretion by the beta cells. Um, the Franzo and the Franzo and, and Empress and myself uh, published uh, five articles. This is after I left Penn because Penn refused to listen to me. That's another story. Um, and we've published much of this this logic uh, that I've given to you, so you can find more references there, more uh, cogent statements that <coughs> necessarily that I speak, uh, to show that uh, uh, we really do believe that in the hospital as well as outpatient, the applying incretins uh, to the um, stress of hospitalization and to the NODAC patient uh, who are on these uh, drugs that are increasing resistance and reducing insulin secretion are really to work. Um, and there's a logic that says that we predict that if you gave, and I'm giving you a process, an incretin has any patient <coughs> walks in the hospital um, with new diabetes, even pre-existing, and have an incretin board, or the transplant patient who has high sugar after the transplant, put an incretin on board. You don't have to change one of your order sets, right, for, for instance. But put this in the background, and what I predict you're going to see, and what I've seen many, many times, and the logic and the data is given in these articles, what you'll see is you'll need less insulin. Many people won't need insulin. Um, and there's some data. In fact, there's surprisingly little data for given, you know, this has been around, the, the, the data has been around for 15 years or more. Uh, there's surprisingly little clinical research that supports what I'm telling you, right? I've given you the logic, but nobody's done the research, or very few people have done the research. But citagliptin has been studied uh, uh, in NODAC after real transplantation, uh, and glycogen improves in six to 12 months. Uh, BMI uh, stays about the same. Vildagliptin uh, available in Europe uh, shows uh, improvement in uh, uh, fasting sugar to our postpandal sugar, reductions in glycohemoglobin. Um, and they got the label wrong here, but citagliptin versus glargin added on to metformin, uh, and you have uh, weight loss in the citagliptin group, weight gain in glargin, no surprise. Um, and yet you have similar reductions in glycohemoglobin, so you can do it. Uh, so glucose metformin versus uh, large metformin, 
uh, and avoid the weight gain that you see with insulin. Uh, they don't have hyperglycemia here, but they uh, have no hyperglycemia when you use sedimentary metformin, and obviously with large eating high risk of hyperglycemia. Um, and then the paper that I wrote about incretins post-transplant published this year uh, with Dr. Sadhu, uh, uh, she had done an early study, 20 post-transplant patients at Houston Methodist. Um, all had pre-existing diabetes or no doubt. Uh, all patients on glucocorticoids, calcineurin uh, inhibitors, one was on mTOR, uh, managed with insulin or agents both, and she gave them a on receptor agonist. Uh, and this is actually, I think, the only study with uh, published on different subagnus. And uh, uh, you can drop like a hemoglobin about 1% in three months. Instant dose reduction was 3% reduced. Weight was uh, reduced an average of 2.7 kilos. Uh, renal function is stable. Immunosuppressive drug levels unchanged. Just what you want to see. Um, I uh, had a friend of mine in Jefferson studying this early on just with eight patients when he set up the, the, the logic for all the papers uh, where we had reductions in glycogen 0.7 of 1.8, six of eight were on insulin, three were able to stop, three had a dose doses 25 to 50%, and if they still needed insulin, they didn't need bolus anymore. And Garber has that study that 85% of hypoglycemia with basal bolus is due to bolus. If I can get rid of the, the, the bolus, I can mark and reduce risk of hyperglycemia. But again, this was preliminary, not even published. Uh, you have her article that was published. So that's the secretion size. So on the resistance side, first I uh, went around China teaching people that resistance is more common than you would think. It's not just the obesity rate. It's the central insulin resistance uh, in the supracastic nucleus. You lose the dopa surge first thing in the morning, and that leads to peripheral insulin resistance and increased sympathetic tone. You also have insulin resistance that's caused by the abnormal bile in the gut, and you also have insulin resistance related to uh, uh, inflammation uh, as well as uh, steroids. Uh, and uh, that's steroids uh, uh, that could do the endogenous stress or the endogenous uh, steroids. Um, the good news is they all funnel through uh, peripheral insulin resistance, uh, liver muscle fat, and so P-glitazone is a good one. Metformin only deals with the liver, um, but P-glitazone deals with muscle and liver fat, so that becomes a logic. And by the way, if, uh, in any particular patient, you might want to use probiotic. Uh, you can use weight reduction medicines, appetite suppressants, uh, probiotics, prebiotics, antibiotics. We're learning more about them. There was an article uh, on blueberry glucan and inulin therapy reducing diabetes uh, uh, presentation. Not know that, but in general, that was two years ago at ADA. Uh, and we have these incretins that reduce inflammation. They have another mechanism of working besides improving insulin secretion and reducing glucagon. Piglizone has been studied in that safe, a 1.3% drop in glycohemoglobin, decreased insulin requirement uh, by a third. And that was uh, Baldwin in Chicago. Uh, the bromocryptine story is that reduced dopa surge in the morning leads to all these uh, problems, but 
if you give this bromocryptin quick release, um, then you can restore the morning peak and you can improve sympathetic tone, reduce sympathetic tone, and reduce all these factors to lead on to diabetes. So that may be another mechanism, but I should say um, where the incretins don't have any effect on the immunosuppressive agents, uh, you'll take a second look at the, this agent, meaning you'll have to follow levels, but guess what? You do that anyway in your transplant management. And the reason you might consider it, remember, you said no, that uh, uh, has increased cardiovascular adverse outcomes. Well, this bromocryptin quick release in one year uh, reduced the uh, uh, cardiovascular outcomes 42%. Now, this was a safety trial. Uh, it, it was from a randomized perspective, but it was a safety trial not designed for reducing cardiovascular outcomes. But the safety was proven. Uh, with a 42% reduction in cardiovascular outcomes. And look at this. The effect was seen, right, within three, four months. Think of lipid stories. It takes three or four years to see an effect. Think of blood pressure. It takes three or four years to see an effect. And here this agent was showing a benefit in three, four months. Now I'm setting you up for the next little story. Um, by the way, the one DPP4s, T's and D's are safe. They don't affect uh, suppressive drug levels. Um, and so we can treat insulin resistance. Uh, we've discussed those agents. Uh, but now let's uh, talk about SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, remember, the minor postprandial sugar elevation uh, upregulates SGLT2, increases absorption of sugar back into the blood. Teleologically, please understand, that's because the kidney was set up to preserve sugar to the brain. Now, they weren't, the evolution wasn't planning on a diabetic state, but that was trying to preserve uh, uh, sugar to the brain. And yet, it's maladaptive in diabetic because then it adversely increases the sugar. Um, so the kidney is an active player in diabetes. It's not just a passive issue. And I just showed you why, because it's trying to preserve the kidney to the brain. Upregulates SGLT2 protein even in prediabetes, modest reduction of pressure, no hyperglycemia, decreases microalbumin, <coughs> inflammation of the kidney. Think about it. If you wanted to preserve kidneys in patients with diabetes, just the principles, what would you want to do? You want to reduce sugar, you want to reduce weight, you want to reduce um, uh, inflammation in the kidney, you want to reduce microalbumin, um, you want to reduce blood pressure. This class does it all. So even early studies, early studies, now three years out, show that uh, EGFR stays the same or is now starting to rise, even people who start with abnormal uh, EGFR. So this is a superb class. And then uh, I hope you've heard the, the news out of Stockholm. I was there uh, uh, about a month ago uh, where they presented the data on the folks. Uh, likely to be a class effect, we can talk about why. Uh, but uh, in there, uh, study, three, roughly three-year study, cardiovascular risk, risk reduction, 38%, right? Didn't affect MIs, didn't affect stroke. Uh, the three-point mace uh, was significant, barely significant, with a 14% reduction. But look at this. Epiglifosin, independent of 100, 300 milligrams, 38% reduction. This one was cardiovascular. This is also cardiovascular. 
And look at this, the separation within one, two, three months. All cause mortality, <coughs> separation, two, three months. And this is a, a 32%. Hospitalization for heart failure. This is the one that's the most obvious, but look, it happens right away because you have a diabetic effect. But you know something nobody understands as yet, why you have such a quick reduction in mortality? Now, I, I spoke to Nzuchi, who uh, presented this in Stockholm, and I told him my theory. I think, <coughs> go back a little bit. Oh, I went too far. I think it has to do with reduction in sympathetic tone. But that's not intuitively obvious, but think about it. This drug, pentagliflozin, uh, you know, reduces sugar. This was a modest drop in this study, 0.5 glycohemical. Uh, um, it reduces pressure, but that wasn't very good. <coughs> Blood pressure studies, I told you, took years to see an effect. Uh, and uh, it, it uh, reduces weight, but there's been weight reduction studies that don't even necessarily show reduction in cardiovascular outcomes. So, you know, and what's the how would CHF reduction improve all-cause modality? Because no CHF for admission, right? The only thing that makes sense is what we would already saw from quickly QR is reduction in synthetic tone. And then, I don't know if there's any nephrologists here, maybe they can teach us better than I know, but there are ways that the kidney communicates to the brain and controls synthetic tone, whether it's neural, whether it's uh, the macular densa, hypofiltration, uh, and uh, Gastrodilatation, but within three months. So why aren't we using this class in Novak? Right? And this, I'm not sure we have data in regards to interfering with uh, uh, transplanting medicine uh, levels, but that we have to follow. But within three months, having that kind of a benefit in people who are such a high risk for adverse cardiac outcomes, it seems obvious if nothing else do the research. Uh, and in a cautious, uh, keep close watch, uh, do it clinically. And then something you may not know, renolazine is a uh, uh, agent used uh, for uh, uh, angina in heart patients. Cardiologists don't use it very much. They think they have better drugs. But the label as it exists now doesn't have an indication of diabetes, but the label as it exists now says it drops like a hemoglobin 0.5 to 0.8, right? And in their cardiovascular outcome study, the only group that had a reduction in cardiovascular outcomes was diabetics. So you might uh, see some further work with this, although here there is immunosuppression agent in So how might we go about and take care of patients uh, uh, with no, no doubt as we <coughs> So treat as many of the egregious 11 targets, the ones I showed for you, um, with the least number of agents, I'm not trying to spend a lot of money, to get the lowest sugar you can, but without undue weight gain or without hypoglycemia. Right? I didn't, I had plenty of time actually. Um, I'm gonna go off on a rant for a second. Um, the sulfonuria story is hypoglycemia weight gain, Every episode of hypoglycemia prolonged QT interval increases the risk of arrhythmias. Um, 
though you have, and I admit, yet randomized controlled tri trials like in the, uh, the uh, core VADT and uh, advanced trials, mild reduction in, uh, uh, in microvascular complications, you have the old UKPS, uh, reductions in microvascular and microvascular complications, right? Even using supplier, those are research studies. But if you look at any of the database studies, 50, 60,000 patients, outpatient, real world use, supinary uh, has increased uh, death 1.8 times in one year after starting. Right? Uh, I've had FDA people, I've had EMA people admit that if a new supinary came to uh, market now, it would not pass current FDA final. It makes no sense. Moreover, weight gain makes no sense. Moreover, uh, uh, they destroy data cells. It makes no sense for you to be using any supplementaries <coughs> ever more. I haven't written them in years. So that's that literal yet. Um, so I'm not talking about, I'm talking about least number of agents. I'm not talking about first, second, third agent. I'm not talking about combination. Uh, I'm talking about early uh, combination therapy. And again, efficacy should be a combination of sugar, efficacy, cardiovascular benefit, uh, and weight loss. And guess what? After the infrared, everybody's predicting that one, two, three years from now, you're going to see different ADA guidelines, and you're going to see different ACE guidelines that reflect uh, a better sense of what these agents are supposed to do, not only sugar, but include weight evaluation, cardiovascular outcome. Make sure you're treating both fasting and postprenal sugars. Um, use agents that preserve and stabilize beta cell functions rather than destroying the cell-fine um, the best agents will synergistically reduce cardiovascular risk factors and outcomes, right? Um, and we should be treating these cardiovascular risk factors with the uh, agents in the blood pressure agent. And if you take this egregious 11 uh, across the natural history of diabetes, and guess what? In the natural history of no diet, then consider therapy for prevention in some people, especially if they have a high risk. Uh, early treatment, even if they have impaired glucose tolerance. Treatment can be diet, but have a low threshold for diet and, and um, uh, hypoglycemic agents. Uh, make changes uh, fast. The uh, current guidelines say make your changes every three months. Where did that come from? Like a hemoglobin, like right, three months. Why don't you use fructosamine? I haven't seen anybody creatively use fructosamine one month after you change something so you can make a decision. It'll stop your inertia score. Make a change from the other layer, check the closing. There are tables that give you equivalent for closing levels to like a new Use it. That's not good just for pains anymore. Not first line, second line, third line, not competition, early combination. Um, the ACE guidelines say uh, combination therapy even start two drugs at the same time over seven times. Uh, I am starting combination therapy not infrequently, not all the time. Uh, if the glycogen is attacked to seven, now you have an agent combination BPP4 SGLT2 that you can do with one pill, right? Um, and I, I've been using that in the Cetaxetum. Pick the right drug for the right patients. They're going to match the side effects to the comorbidities, and uh, you'll decide what to do. Uh, you can delay the need for insulin. Guess what? All the data that says uh, diabetics are going to become will all or most of them require insulin was gotten when they were using supine reading. And when they were using 
insulin. By definition, hyperinsulinemia is a result of using exogenous insulin. Hyperinsulinemia destroys the beta cells, right? Triglycerides and obesity. So all the data that we said that the beta cells are bound to fail occurred with the wrong drugs. So what if we're using pinglism? What if we're using nicotine? What if we're um, using other agents, like even uh, SGLT2s, preserved beta cells? Uh, uh, you can preserve the beta cells. So delay the need for insulin. Insulin, and if you need the insulin, can the current guidelines don't tell you what to do. Continue the non-insulin therapy as you start basal, and there is enough data. Quickly, metformin basal, 30% uh, only. Yeah, 30% get the goal. Don't need goals. Uh, Pegulism, DPP4 is 15-20% get the goal. Don't need goals. Um, basal and glucose receptor agonists, 50% get the goal. Metformin and glucose. Uh, and glucose receptor agonist, 80% ethical. So think about it. if you keep those three agents as you start the basal, you can predict 89% of your people won't need bolus which is where all the hypoglycemia comes These are principles of heart that don't know that as well as anything else. Um, and then I know how to get patients off insulin. I'll show you a little formula in a second. But don't forget nutrition, exercise, and that should be no smoke. <coughs> So, no sulfonylureas, I didn't talk about ischemic preconditioning. Um, with angina, your coronary dilate sulfonylureas block it. Um, they cause baseline phaptosis, hypoglycemia, weight gain, couldn't pass FDA guidelines. Delay insulin for hypoglycemia, weight, and increase insulin resistance. This is the story, um, and this is something I learned 40 years ago with Rubenstein. You know, insulin secreted the portal system which extracts uh, two-thirds of insulin, so your systemic circulation insulin is, is reduced, uh, and, it's the right, and it's perfectly controlled by the base cell, which has a perfect sensor. But as soon as you give exogenous insulin, uh, by definition, you're going to have hyperinsulinemia. And now you have lots of articles, you can just <coughs> show you, that have shown that not only have we seen weight but cancer, inflammation, hypertension, obesity, type 2 diabetes, all result in hyperglycemia. That's why I have this rant, avoid insulin unless you really need it. I'm not saying minimize the goals. I'd still like to get everybody 6'5 or less. Um, I forgot to tell you, I'm on forward drugs and I'd like to go to this 526. And I can travel the world. But you don't need drugs that are doing bad things to you. And that includes a NODAC patient. And specifically NODAC, identify these people early uh, at risk uh, and, uh, and watch them closely, both in terms of glycemic control and the Choose a drug therapy based on the prevailing mechanisms of their metabolic dysfunction. Love the mechanisms of hyperglycemia. Uh, careful evaluation of drug drug interaction, side effect pro profiles. You're going to have to follow your lowest like you do anyway. Um, consider patient factors, so not minimizing cost, probability, compliance. Um, and you need a dedicated clinical team. And I was impressed this morning of how all of you work together so well. I mean, you're an exception, and you should know that you should be proud of it. In a hospital, have the incretin on board, you don't have to change any order set. But you'll see with the incretin on board, uh, you'll need less insulin, 
basal bolus reduced doses if you do need it. Um, outpatient, if they're on insulin, you can get them off insulin. Uh, I reduce uh, a patient's insulin dose 25% if they're willing to stay away from sweets. Candy cookie cakes, high fruit, high sweet, sodas, juices, sugar, fries, no sugar, added cakes, good fries, nothing's more refreshing. Right? They can have a hard fruit with a meal, no problem. I say 20 times a day, so it's easy to remember. Um, and then I'll reduce those 25% if I believe they have hypoglycemia. But that includes symptomatic and asymptomatic. And waking up in the morning with headache and night or sweat, terrible hunger during the day, unexpected hunger. Those are people who reduce those 25%. Somebody walking in the door, no doubt, let's say, um, then I'm reducing the dose in my head 50%. But now if I start a, a, a what do you call it, a glipoma sacraginous, reduce the dose 25%. Um, and if, uh, that's assuming the, the control is pretty good at that point. They'd like to get them off insulin. They don't need it. Well, they don't need it. They were started before anybody was thinking about what I'm talking about today. And if you put them in SGLT2 inhibitor, reduce the dose 20%. So I can take someone who walks in the door, 40 minutes of insulin, eat a transplant, um, and I'll stop their insulin the same day as if they're willing to follow it up. For higher doses, you make the reduction, they go home, and as they lose weight, they're going to, because both well, SGLT2 lose weight, but one lose weight, then they're going to start to go low, they have my number, hold on their cell phone, they can call me, I start reducing those, four, six, eight weeks later, they're off insulin. Publish an article, 300 units of insulin, and a year later, they, they lose off of insulin. You can get people off, off of insulin uh, with these new agents, as long as you don't use the wrong agents. So, we're going to use over time, if not today, 10 years from now, uh, general diabetic therapy based on beta-cell-centric approach to diabetes is my prediction. Uh, we need to reduce weight, glycohemoglobin, cardiovascular risk, and know that that's as important, maybe more important than in the uh, general population. We'll choose agents that counteract the metabolic defects. Uh, we'll continue consider early use of intercontinental uh, therapies. Uh, I have a bias for the people who set And please don't leave here thinking this clinician doesn't need research. We really do need the research to validate these strategies. But I'm giving you an approach. We don't want to wait 10 years to implement lots of the that success. So as long as you understand the principles of the diabetes, the agency, and follow them closely, in my mind, there's no reason you might not want to start doing this now as we wait for the evidence-based research in the future. And with that, I'm, I'll stop, and I have plenty of time to answer questions uh, as much as you like. Thank you very much, Dr. Schwartz. You've given us a lot of food for thought, that's for sure. That's so, right. anyone have any questions? Go to it. From a clinical standpoint, our concern with using the GLP-1s in the hospital might be post-op patients not eating well with pain meds, maybe having gastroparesis. So I'm just curious, clinically, yes. how you decided which patients were actually stable enough to use them or? Almost all of them, because I'm going to correct you on one issue. Lip receptor agonists do not cause gastroparesis. That's the specific issue where they have this neurologic uh, flowing of uh, gastroparesis that's pathologic. Type 2 diabetes in particular, um, and the, 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 I, if you think about it, you know that as a form of type 2. Again, it doesn't really even need to worry about it using the classification approach. Um, uh, have fast gastric Why? Why? Because they reduce the amyloid with the early beta cell dysfunction. So 
with water reset dryness improve it to normal or slow it to normal gastric. Would you include in the transplant patients who had nephropathy who might have gastroparesis? That's the group I'm talking about. Well, they might have gastroparesis, but that's the exception where they use damage and very through the surgery. So we're going to expect that, and that's in our audit. But if you don't think that gastroparesis of that sort that was result of surgery, then these are ideal. Why? Because think about it. Um, <coughs> In the hospital, they're not eating fat. They're not eating large amounts. They're not eating high fat bites. Those are all the things that slow down gastric emptying critically. So we have found excellent success. If you look at a lot of the articles that I referred to in my Hippocrates and Hospital story, um, you'll see all but one article, I'm talking about six, seven, eight articles of using Hippocrates in the hospital, IV exam time, and, uh, and subcute dosing, they don't have extra Nausea um, uh, risk. They really don't. It's like 2, 3, 4%. Surprise. Why? No surprise. To me, A, I tell the patients stop eating first and foremost. And by the way, they're not eating fast, they're not eating a lot, they're not eating high fat. They work. Please. Uh, there, we know that transplant patients have an increased risk for osteoporosis, and there's now some literature coming out on the SGLT2s associated with osteoporosis. Does that cause any issue for you? No, because I'm not sure I'm very impressed with the literature coming out with SGLT2 and bone fracture. Um, statistically, it was about 1.3 cases in 100 patient years of use. Um, it happened within months, um, and it seemed to be related to falls because the physician forgot to teach the patient to pick up liquids because it's relying on the side effect. Uh, and if you look at the bone density data, uh, the T score changed by 0.1. So I don't think that has any. I have some of those slides and this email Other questions, other concerns? Thank you very much again, Dr. Ford.